if you have it, it stands out. I've met a lot of really cool people and achieved a lot of interesting things by putting myself in situations that I was way underqualified for. You probably spend 70% of your waking hours working. Why not do something that is fun and challenging and makes a difference on the entire infinite spectrum of the world and possibilities? What is a skill set? or experience where you are like uniquely positioned to do something. This is Audience of One, and I'm your host, Spencer Kier. This week's guest is Tyler Dang. Tyler is the co-founder and CEO of newsletter platform Beehive. Tyler and I talk about newsletters, creators, running a startup, standing out, taking the path less traveled, ambition, authenticity, and uniqueness. Please enjoy. Why did you decide to build a newsletter platform instead of leaning into your experience with Morning Brew and building another newsletter? Yeah, so I think as like a self-taught engineer and, and getting into software, like building solutions, solving problems is always interesting to me. So media is fun and I got a lot of exposure and experience in that space. But what intrigued me the most at Morning Brew was building the tools that our writers use, that the sales team use, that the copywriters use, growing the newsletter from 50,000 subscribers when I joined to three and a half million was an incredible experience of trial and error, understanding different acquisition channels, understanding the different tools and how to build dashboards and visualize your audience. And so I found that the challenge of wanting to grow and monetize a newsletter and the tools that help facilitate that to be a more interesting problem set and area to build in um, than building another media property. Although you maybe wouldn't have known this would be the case from the outset, uh, Beehive has become either profitable or is near like break even uh, r relatively quickly. I think that's atypical in the state of like startups today. Um, what Did you ever give thought to bootstrapping and I think especially at the series A stage why did you decide to raise instead of uh you know trying to to focus on just making the the business better yeah uh to, I mean we're trying to do both right to set the stage we just raised a series right. A 12 and a half million by light speed about two months ago from this recording or a month and a half um my I, I'm like pretty vocal of like anti VC in a lot of ways like I don't love the incentives I don't like the lack of control I don't like the flywheel of going from a C to an A to a B to a C. Um, and so my preference would always be to bootstrap and retain as much control as you possibly can. Um, and also just align incentives with you as the business owner and co-founder of kind of dictating where you're going with the roadmap and trajectory of the company. I'd say we're fortunate with our investors where I still feel like that is the case. Like I am not running weekly, monthly, quarterly decisions by them. Like they invested in us because they trust me and the team to make the right decisions of how to grow the company. Um, and we still retain most of the control, but my preference would always be to bootstrap if and when possible. The situation with Beehive in particular, we started, I was what, 26, 27, didn't have a ton of like excess capital laying around. My two co-founders are married, one just had a kid. Um, so like jumping off into starting your own thing. Like I know a lot of people and entrepreneurs like to fantasize, like I didn't pay myself for 12 months and like, right. I just, that's not really sustainable. And I think like actually to give your company and startup the best chance of success, like you should have like some things out of sight, out of mind. Like I don't worry about finances. I don't need to worry about like, am I investing in my 401k? What happens if things go wrong? Like 
the co-founders and obviously the employees now are taken care of. So we can focus 100% on just growing the business. So one is just being able to provide for ourselves and our families was like kind of like table stakes, I'd say. Two was like, there's a lot of upfront costs with what we're doing. So hosting and, and storing the website's one thing, but also we are built on top of email service providers and other large vendors that kind of require like an upfront annual commitment of like $85,000. So when we were looking at launching and doing our initial like pre-seed round, we could have somehow come up with like $150,000 ourselves to bootstrap. And then you're just, I feel like the more that you're adding financial pressure into your life and not being able to focus on like just building the business. So some combination of those three or four reasons is why we did raise like an initial seed round. Um, but generally like I'm pro bootstrap and find that a lot more admirable. And at the end of the day, if you use the VC correctly, then you won't be doing that in perpetuity. It's a, it's a means to an end and getting there a little bit faster than you could have otherwise. Um, there, there are a million newsletter service providers out there. You, you aren't the first, uh, ConvertKit, MailChimp, et cetera. What insight did you feel like you had when starting this about the customer, the industry that the incumbents didn't have? Yeah. I mean, it really is derived from the morning brew experience. So I'm not coming from a, I built another SaaS provider and like some sort of tool that sent emails. I'm coming from the, we joined morning brew when we were kind of built on MailChimp and WordPress and had a custom referral program. And we ended up just building everything ourselves. So when I left morning brew, we had our own website, our own email templates, our own CMS, our own ad platform, dashboards, data, referral program, growth tools. And so we built an entirely unique ecosystem and it took three and a half years to get there. We tried a lot of things that didn't work. We built things that didn't work. We acquired subscribers in ways that weren't the smartest, but it, what we learned through the experience is what data we should be looking at. How do we optimize? How do we keep building? And through that experience, I saw what it takes not to build a successful platform, but what it takes to build a successful newsletter is some combination of a lot of those things. So the perspective that we bring to the market is not the, what are the flashiest like bells and whistles introduced to a platform, but like, this is what actually got us from point A to point B, point B being getting acquired for 75 million by business insider and being an upstart in the newsletter space. That is morning brew. Like, I think we have a lot of unique insights that other platforms don't have. So that was the initial, initial hypothesis beyond that. I just think that most email service providers are more marketing e-commerce focus. And so us at Morning Brew, like we were sending emails through MailChimp and then Campaign Monitor. They were primary and then sale through. They're primarily marketing tools that we were kind of retrofitting for our own needs. And like we needed data right. differently as a publisher. We didn't care about the pixels and tracking sales and like the volume of sales. And we were constantly, they would release updates and I'd look at them. I'm like, I don't really give a shit about any of these because they don't serve our business case. And so we are building with the content creator front and center and other newsletters that want to be the next Morning Brew, Milk Road, uh, Matthew Berry's Fantasy Life. Like all of those are like kind of who we're building for. And I don't think there's a unique set of tools or email player in the space that does just that. I think especially recently you've uh, branded yourselves as like a leader in this space of kind of content creator focused newsletters as opposed to this other uh, kind of standard email series providers. Um, but of course the job's never done. There's a lot of big problems still to be solved. What do you feel like are the biggest problems 
that uh, newsletter creators still face today. And I think it, I'm curious about three, maybe one of each of these three phases of the process. So creation, distribution, and monetization. Yeah, I've always said that I think most content creators only care about two things. It's growing a larger audience and monetizing that audience. And if you can find ways to capitalize and help them on both of those fronts, they're going to be very happy. And so we have a bunch of different growth tools. Um, monetization, to answer your question more directly, is I think where we want to spend more time. For example, we are only $99 a month. I think there's ways on the platform where you make many multiples of that in revenue. And that's always been our objective. It's you pay us $99 a month. We might be paying you out $2,000 a month from revenue from either premium subscriptions, boosts, or the ad network. In which case, like, why would you ever churn off of our platform? Because we are actually so value additive in your tech stack. We want to be positioned as a partner, not an expense to you. Um, so that has been the North Star that we've been working towards. It's been a long two years to get there because it is a very competitive space. So you have to have feature parity with all of the other platforms that are good at one thing or another. But I feel pretty confident that we are very well positioned to one, compete with most other email players, if not outperform them, and then also provide opportunities that used to be a separate third party or an internal team used to handle that we can now handle ourselves. Um, and I think the all-in-one intuitiveness is a huge advantage for a lot of content creators who don't want to manage and juggle six different platforms, six different logins, integrations with all of them. Um, so that's kind of what we're building towards. Even though you're focused on newsletters today, I think uh, more than that, you're a, you're a creator support business. Um, and I, I've heard you say that elsewhere. Uh, what, what would you say is the... And you can insert whatever time frame makes sense here if you've given it enough thought. But what's your 10-year plan for supporting creators? And I'm particularly interested in how you uh, how you move into other mediums as well. Yeah. So I'm not going to give you a great answer there in the sense that I don't have a 10-year plan. I remember yeah. when we met with like they were like, what's your like three-year plan? I go, I don't even have that. I have a short to medium long-term plan almost always and then backing in to get there so when i met with like lightspeed and earlier this year honestly january 2nd i sent an email to all of our investors and i said the goal this year is simple i want a million dollars a month in revenue by december and like that is our short to term the short to medium term goal and we're pretty close to hitting that now that we're like three and a half months out um but things change so quickly both in like the world the creator space and in the industry where I feel like locking yourself into a 10-year vision, like our goal is always going to be aligned with what content creators and publishers and businesses need to grow and monetize their audience. That can take shape in so many different ways that we can't even conceive right now in the sense that, it, you know, like maybe AR takes off or virtual reality or there's just other mediums that I don't think we know what the landscape will look like five, six, seven years from now. But being very tight and tight, creating tight feedback loops with our users and understanding what their pain points are and building towards that, I think is a key competitive advantage that we've leaned into a ton. And I think it's actually something I was just talking about yesterday that Morning Brew did really well is the question yesterday that someone asked me is like, why didn't they get into like selling their own products or doing more video or social or this and that? And I was like, one thing that Alex and Austin did spectacularly well is very focused on like we are going to create the best newsletter 
We are going to sell better ads that perform better for our advertisers, and we're going to grow as quickly as possible. And we were constantly pitched on doing video, doing audio, podcasts, creating all these sorts of like properties. And they remained extremely focused on just what they were best at and didn't try to deviate too much. And I think that that focus is something that a lot of startups miss and try to do a little bit of everything. So I think naively when I first started Beehive, I was talking like, oh, we can definitely get into community and video and audio. And I think we may experiment with some of that over the course of the company, but like there aren't very tangential or very um, exact plans to lay that out in the next you know, year or so. I think if there's an opportunity to serve our users better in a different medium, we'll explore it. But that's the big, long, no answer to your question of like, as whatever we can do to align with our users and solve their problems, I think will position us in a place of success to continue to grow to the company and help others. And understandably, to a certain extent, there's no there's no point in planning so far out in the future uh, when those plans are going to change significantly. Um, and to your point, Morning Brew, since being acquired, has you know uh, meandered out into those other mediums. They have successful podcasts, successful short-term, short-form video platforms. Um, selfishly, uh, given I am interested in podcasting, I'm not sure how much time you've thought about the space, um, but I'm curious what opportunities you see for podcasting platforms where where they might be vulnerable or not cutting it and new entrants could come in and thinking uh, maybe in a similar vein as my previous question around creation, distribution, and monetization. Um, so so whether it's, you know, the platforms for dis- distributing the, the players like Spotify or Apple and then means of monetization. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'd be curious to ask you, like, as a podcaster, where are your pain points currently where you see that there's opportunities for disruption? Yeah, the and I am in a different position than, you know, somebody who has tens of thousands or millions of subscribers where this isn't monetized yet, uh, nor could it be when you're on the order of hundreds of listeners. So that's not yet a problem for me. Um, I think I'm more interested in the in one, the distribution piece, like how can I improve discovery? Uh, So so I don't know what the, the corollary is here, but or the the uh, analog but for example what you've done with boosts for newsletters um that has radically improved distribution or like increased subscriber numbers for a lot of your your newsletters um what's the like analog for that in podcasting i don't know that there is one outside of just plugging in you know a 30 second ad in the middle of your your uh your recording but that doesn't really drive people there um and then I think in, in regards to players, like they're they're still very primitive. Uh, it's it's a very linear experience. Uh, clipping it or taking notes out of it, um, sharing clips, like there's a lot to be done there on top of uh, discovery. And then in regards to advertising, I think just like attribution and how you actually drive an action in the moment uh, is still very nascent. So yeah, th- those are my half baked thoughts on it. Yeah. I mean, those are probably the things that would jump out to me as well, but I'm also so much deeper in the newsletter side of things. Like I don't have a podcast and I am less familiar with the production and everything needed and the pain points. Like that's like an area of customer discovery where we would more or less ask the questions that I just asked and try to understand if there's any insights there. 
and see who's trying to solve it. I do think audio is like an extension of a lot of people's media properties. Like a lot of them either start with audio, then launch a newsletter or vice versa. Mm -hmm. So that does seem to be an extension of where we would potentially go next. Um, but I guess still TBD in terms of like where we can actually move the needle. Like, I don't think we're replacing Spotify or iTunes as, or Apple music as like with a podcast player as like the go-to place to consume podcasts. But are there tools in the toolkit in terms of like being able to chop it up add advertisements, attribute them better and distribute it maybe in tangent with email? I think there's opportunity there, but still a lot to be determined. And I think as we move towards this kind of, I don't know what the right phrase here is, like the state of transmedia where you can, uh, you could listen to a newsletter or you could read a podcast. There's a lot of synergy there in terms of being able to consume in your preferred format or medium. Um, as the cost and kind of time of generating content like trends towards zero, I think in particular uh, aided by AI, what do you see as being the the moat for creators? Is it is it quality and originality and like we we kind of look to the free market to figure out uh, who's good and who isn't? Um, or is there something we should be doing to like kind of limit this this noise and and quality issues? Yeah, I think it's probably quality and trust is like the big thing, right? So when you look at Morning Brew as like a content aggregator, like there's plenty that aggregate different news stories that are popular in sports, politics, business, finance, crypto, like any sort of content category. So the aggregation, I think, becomes a lot easier to do, especially with AI. It's what do you do in conjunction with that that makes it entertaining? So like, I think that's where Morning Brew introduced kind of like having a personality behind it. And the t a tone of voice that is very different from the traditional business news was like kind of their first innovation that and leading in the email as a channel versus like a web destination. So that's right. one. I think you are seeing a lot of content creators who have a big personality and brand, whether it's through YouTube, podcast, TikTok, Instagram, like you want to read content they're creating because you care about them as the individual. And so I think it's a move towards like the creator economy pool case of people follow people, not brands. And so if you have a person who's the face of a brand, um, and then they're also creating a newsletter that has content, like there's a lot of examples of that, that I think are being done really well. So I think there's more alignment with the people and or brand leading it. Um, and there's like a level of quality and trust baked into that. I think that's where you differentiate because if everyone ends up using the same AI to generate, what are the top 10 business stories from yesterday? Like that gets very repetitive. Um, so I think there's like a few different levels. There's like convenience, which is what the aggregators do well. There's like entertainment, which is like throwing a wrinkle into the aggregation. Um, and then there's like trusted analysis and resource like Ben Thompson's Stratechery is like the prime example right. of you sign up to his newsletter because you're interested in his opinions and thoughts about a particular industry or company. And that's something that AI I don't think does as well because um, it's replicating a person. Over the last, uh, I don't know, call it 10 years, maybe 15 years, although we have examples of this prior, um, to your point about the focus on individuals, we've seen this move away from like uh, trust in institutions to trust in individuals. Uh, and that's fueling a lot of Beehive's business. These are largely individual creators and not uh, brands. Um, although these individuals are, as a result, starting to create brands. Uh, 
do you see kind of a continued trend towards individuals or do you think the pendulum will swing back a little bit towards trusting institutions, whether things come full circle and those are like institutions that these individuals have existing trust uh, with or or we just kind of go back to institutions as the focus? Yeah, I almost feel like it will never be like an all or nothing. I feel like the trend has been towards individuals, but I think that's kind of like a narrative that has been built because I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was not none of that, but it was much less common. But with the rise of Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, podcasts, and like bringing the barriers to entry to create content where you don't need to go through a large incumbent media player or company or publisher. Um, I I think the reason why people say that that is a trend, and it, I mean, it definitely is, it's just because before it wasn't possible, right? But I still think people go to CNN and go to right. ESPN to get different news. And there's like definitely benefits to receiving content from a trusted player. Um, so I don't think it'll ever be like an all or nothing type situation. I think you'll continue to see very large content creators emerge and either build their own brands or be enticed by larger players who either grab multiple of them or just bring them one as talent. Um, but I think that'll be like an ever shifting ecosystem um, where there's not like a, a true, like we're always going to go back to trusted brands or we're always going to rely on individuals for entertainment and news. Maybe the, the biggest benefit of newsletters or email is that the creator gets to own the distribution. They, they have the list. Whereas uh, with every other medium, you're kind of beholden to the platform. Um, and I, I know you're also a bit of a, a crypto, you're, you're a bit crypto curious. So I'm sure you've thought about this a little bit from the protocol perspective. Um, but what hope do you have for kind of new protocols, maybe similar to, to what SMTP is for, for emails that enable people to kind of own their audience across platforms for these other mediums? And is that something you would ever even consider tackling? I know that's a radically different business. Yeah, for sure. Definitely first time I've heard this question. Um, so don't have, haven't put like a ton of thought into it. I do think it is the bull case for email where if you've grown a massive audience on Instagram and they decide that they're going in a different direction with the algorithm to benefit their bottom line, which doesn't help you, then like there's no way to get in front of your audience when the algorithm is changed. There's a lot of instances of people with controversial content getting banned from their accounts and losing access altogether. And so there's a huge platform risk in any of these platforms where you can either have your distribution cut in half overnight because of an algorithm change to benefit their business, not yours. There's a risk in losing access to your account. And then there's just like the lack of data portability where having a massive audience on Instagram, if Instagram isn't conducive for you to sell your product, sell a course, um, have premium subscriptions, whatever it is, and another channel is, you can't just pick up your audience from Instagram and drop them into an email or to Twitter or TikTok. And so that is really the bull case around email is the fact that you can take one, it like adds a ton of pressure for us because you can pick up your list and move it to any other platform right. at any time. But those emails are people you one collect data on. So you know who they are, what they're interested in, where they're located. You can contact them one off, like that's a direct relationship you have with them. And when you set hit send, like, you know, you're getting in front of them or at least landing in their inbox, which is something you can't say when you post on Instagram, Like you have no idea what your distribution or the concentration of your quote unquote audience is 
in terms of actually seeing your post in their feed. And so it's very obscure and it's or opaque, I should say. And like, it, it's, that is like, again, the bull case for email as far as like future protocols. I haven't put a ton of thought into it. I think it's something that people talk about a lot is data portability from one platform to another. I find it hard to believe any of the large tech companies are going to make their social graph acceptable right. and exportable to be ported to another platform. That is like a key competitive advantage. And even just from like the data models and everything, it seems like really difficult to wrap my head around how that would be possible. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that is the, the pitch for email and why I'm so bullish on it. And I think it's not an either or. Like I think you can have a massively engaged audience on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok and then send tangentially related content in a newsletter, primarily written form and benefit from premium subscriptions, benefit from top of funnel into a course or from ads or just selling advertisements across different channels it becomes a lot more valuable when you have multiple platforms and multiple touch points. So those are a few arguments that we make in favor of why any large content creator on these platforms should consider adding email as an additional channel and touch point. Absolutely. Um, although you were the second employee at Morning Brew, uh, and, and you got some exposure to kind of the executive, you know, the executive suite or the, the roles there within, um, I imagine not until you got to Beehive, did you really know what it was like to be a CEO? Uh, what, what were maybe some of the underappreciated or just entirely overlooked aspects of being a CEO that now you, you appreciate having done it for a couple of years? Yeah, I'd say like. The people and team part's always the hardest. Like I love the product and engineering and branding side and the growth side. Like that's fun to me. It's fun to think about how a product should work. It's fun to think about creating the mock-ups. How do you build the product? How do you market the product? How do you get adoption? Like those are what I'd consider like fun problems to solve. As you scale a company, especially remote, we're international. I think we're in six or seven different countries with employees. It is very difficult, one, just hiring talented people who are bought into the mission. It's very difficult onboarding correctly. Like it's easy when it's the same six or seven people as a small team who all know the vision, who are kind of touching every part of the business because they have to, because it's very small. We have since raised our series A, went from about 15 employees to 30 in the past like two months. And so rapid expansion in a team that had limited processes in the first place because we were so young and like didn't need them before has been a stress point for, I think, the business in general. So I'd say like the most underappreciated thing is one, just having everyone rowing in the same direction, fully bought in and contributing at a high level. When you're smaller, like there's nowhere to hide, like things need to get done and there's only so many people who can do them. So things get done as you get larger. It's easier to be so busy with the 80 things going on that you need to ensure that the people are taken care of, that they're bought in, that they understand what they should be doing and how to improve and that they're taken care of in the sense of career trajectory, they're contributing, they're learning on the job. Um, so I'd say like the people problems, especially in a remote setting, has been the most challenging thing and probably overlooked. Yeah, your your role moves from focusing on and building technology to coordination problems, uh, which in many ways are, are way more difficult. Um, and yet I know, at, at least from uh, other episodes and what, what I've read, 
you you have no interest in kind of selling out and getting acquired in the near term. Like you want to take this thing the distance. Um, you have a pretty, I think you, you even said like you have a more ambitious roadmap than MailChimp had by the time it was acquired. Um, where does that, that like hunger and, uh, and sense of ambition come from? Because I, th- I think we maybe stereotype founders that they're all like that, but I think many of them are looking for just, you know, an exit and maybe those are the ones that fail. But I feel like especially you have this like chip on your shoulder or this ambition. Uh, so where did that come from? Is that something you've like cultivated or has always been there? It's a great question because I know I have it and I don't question it, right? Like I have yeah. a drive that will encourage me. And like, I look forward to staying in on Friday nights, working till 2 a.m. because it's quiet and I can get shit done. And that feeling of progress and growing and building something meaningful and impactful that helps other people and businesses and users grow and monetize themselves is like a huge passion project of mine and something that really fires me up. And so like I have that drive and ambition and I don't question it because I'm also realistic and like I don't think it lasts forever, right? Like I imagine at some point when I'm 35, 40, 50, like have a family, have kids, want to spend time, like it's just a different time and place in your life. And right now I have none of those things. I have nothing but drive and the want to build an extremely successful company. I think a lot of it comes from, I've always been interested in startups and technology and entrepreneurship. I've always like read the books about how Facebook and Twitter and all these like big Silicon Valley companies started. Um, I like nerd out on like shows like even like HBO satire, like Silicon Valley. I just think the concept of building something that impacts tens of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions of people and doing it in a way that is beneficial to them. It's like such a cool, badass thing to be a part of. And I've always kind of admired the stories of other startups. And so being in a place where I feel like I have a unique experience and skill set to build something in an area that is ripe for disruption, that's already seen exits of 12 billion from MailChimp, And we have such a talented co-founding team and team all across the board now. It's just, or I found myself in a situation that I'm very fortunate to be here. And I'd feel like I'd kick myself forever if I didn't give it 120% forever until we see this through. So I don't know if I have like the therapist, armchair therapist, like where does the drive come from? Um, I'm sure there's like underlying, like grew up like, lower to middle class, like want to take care of my family, want to be able to do things. I have ambitions beyond email, believe it or not, in terms of like making the world a better place. And a lot of those things are achievable through money and power and exposure. And like, I don't have any of those and working to achieve them. So I think there's like a ton of different things underlying that have the drive. But at the end of the day, it's really fun to build cool shit with really smart people and make a difference. And that's kind of the wave I'm riding. So would you say that's kind of at the top of your your value stack or what motivates you is just building building cool shit and like the the process there within? Or is there uh, you know, something else associated? Like maybe it's money down the line or maybe it's quote unquote glory uh or status. Is it just the building? It's probably the combination of everything. So I think the in the long term, the money status accomplishment of being able to build something successful is definitely appealing and like would be lying if i said that's not a huge part of the motivation 
I'm also, I think you can take a step back and realize you probably spend 70% of your waking hours working. And if you're going to dedicate such a large percentage of your time doing anything, why not do something that is fun and challenging and makes a difference? And so it's a lot more fun when you're doing well and you do well by working harder and building something of value. And so they're all interconnected and there's not like a silver bullet of like, this is what gets me out of bed in the morning and why I stay up so late working. But I'd rather do something that succeeds and works. And there's a lot of other benefits that come from that working out. From what I can tell, you weren't somebody who at like age five was obsessed with building newsletters. Uh, you were into building, you were into tinkering. And then Austin, who was like your, your childhood friend, came to you and gave you the shot. It was like, hey, build this referral system. And kind of your career has snowballed from that. Would you say you're the type of person who, who more so like has a passion about a particular topic, whether you can develop it or not? Or is that passion like portable and it's more just about the building? Probably. I mean, definitely the latter in the sense of like, I didn't wake up one day and be like, I want to know everything about email newsletters and build the best yeah. newsletter tool. I'm someone who believes a lot in luck and opportunity and making the most of different serendipitous opportunities. And so the more situations you put yourself in and opportunities to say yes to something that leads to one thing that leads to another. Like I left morning brew because I was done with email. I was like, I, I, it's a lot. I mean, it was successful. It was amazing. I learned a ton. And then like when I sat down and thought about it and saw the problem in the ecosystem and the opportunity, I was like, I actually think I'm better positioned to solve this problem and build something um, than anyone else that I'm aware of. And looking at the competitors in the space, like there really is a massive opportunity here to build something that could benefit a lot of content creators and publishers. And so it's kind of like right time, right place, understanding your skill set and being able to take a risk in, in pursuing something. But that, that could also be applied for 15 other things that I may or may not go on to do in my career and life. Um, I think it's ultimately a drive to build cool things, to solve interesting problems and see progress in any area. And a lot of that's just competitiveness. Like I hate losing and I think it's pretty awesome to build something and it's a lot of fun. So. That's kind of like the recurring theme, really. On the note of, uh, you know, maybe being the, if not the one of the best positioned people to solve this problem, given given your experience with Morning Brew, um, I heard in a different episode that you said when, when you were deciding whether or not to go, you had uh, the option of going to Deloitte. You had a job there. Uh, and this was around the same time Austin gave you this chance. And a friend told you that you could either be one of 50K people uh, at Deloitte doing the same thing, or you could be one of one doing what you're going to be doing at Morning Brew. Why was the, I, I think on the surface, and maybe now we have the benefit of hindsight, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, on the surface now, people might say like, well, it was obvious you should go to Morning Brew, but like you had to move from DC to New York. You left your girlfriend. Uh, you're making far less money. Why was the uniqueness and novelty so important to you instead of the stability and security? Yeah, I think it's a recurring theme that's caused me a ton of stress in my life, but I've always chosen the more difficult path of kind of being over my head in a situation in life. And so whether it is at University of Maryland doing engineering and a minor and like taking very difficult classes while having a social life, like I didn't choose the easy route in college. I chose like the most challenging engineering route to learn a lot and 
try to solve problems. I started a company in college, like gave up weekends. We traveled a ton. We tried to build like a two-sided marketplace while doing engineering, while trying to have some bit of a social life. I signed up to do research in college that I knew nothing about capacitors really outside of the equation, but like just thought that it would be a cool opportunity while I'm in a university setting to do laboratory research in something in like the engineering field. Showed up to the lab every week and had no idea what I was doing and eventually like kind of figured it out. But like was stressed constantly and like lived with like an optional level of stress that I could have just quit or not done. But I just wanted to challenge myself. And so that all three of those experiences caused considerable more stress than I really needed to put myself through. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot of work ethic and discipline and problem solving skills through that. And then same with Morning Brew. Like he wanted, I was 22 years old ish. And it was an opportunity to go up to New York and build and be trusted to be like the problem is how can we grow and build a sustainable business we're at fifty thousand subscribers now we think this could be millions of subscribers there's no playbook or toolkit or like boss telling you what to do like you are building this yourself and there's so much overwhelming pressure and uncertainty of i'm betting on myself i'm not following a to-do list but am kind of testing and tinkering and figuring out myself has always been really interesting to me um, I've never really wanted to be plug and play in any role where it's like, here's like what you do on a day-to-day basis. And like, you just need to do this like marginally better than the next person. I kind of love the white space that I entered at Morning Brew of, you can build a CMS, you can build a referral program, you can build a, a ad management platform. You can try XYZ growth acquisition channel. Everything is fair game and some will work, some won't, but it's up to you to figure out and like ideally make them work or cut off the things that don't. And like that really is like startup and entrepreneurship in a nutshell. It's really just like flying or building the plane as you fly it. I've just always been attracted to that problem set to the demise of me being stressed 24 seven and having a bunch of gray hairs now. But like it is just, but it's also opened so many doors for me to be in that situation. And I think that's kind of the recurring lesson that I've learned of I've met a lot of really cool people and achieved a lot of interesting things by putting myself in situations that I was way underqualified for and way over my head. Um, And I think that either forces you to quit and I'm just someone who typically doesn't quit. And so the alternative is working really hard and figuring it out. And it's a pretty great feeling on the other side of that. I know I'm asking you to to maybe psychoanalyze other people that aren't you. So if you haven't spent enough time doing this, maybe you won't have a good answer. But I'm curious why you think other people aren't more like that. Why why are they more, I don't know if the right phrase is risk averse or more interested in comfort or want a lower stress level. Uh, but w- why don't more people embrace that kind of environment? Yeah, I think a lot of it's situational, right? Like you kind of don't know what people are dealing with in terms of what risk tolerance they're willing to have and what dependencies they have, whether it's bills or family or expectations. I also think like to what I was just getting or what I was just discussing, like I live with a level of stress and fear of failure and opportunity costs like every day, every hour of I'm not going to go out this Friday night because I want to work and like I'm missing out on fun and memories and times with my friends for the potential upside of this business doing better, but it could also fail. And then what do I get at the end of the day of a failed business and giving up like the prime years of my life? Like there's always like the uncertainty and trade-offs you make. 
And then there's just the stress of like, there's 30 people that depend on me and the decisions we're making from a strategy perspective and hiring and execution to pay their bills and get them paid. And like, there's a lot of trust and pressure built into having employees that rely on you to continue to perform at a high level. And so it is really stressful. And like, there's a lot of ups and a lot of people see the ups because they're easier to see a company that is growing and the revenue milestones and the hiring. There's a lot of people and, and by a lot of people, I mean almost no one who sees the downsides of me sitting in my room 16 hours a day, constantly having a to-do list of 15 items and growing with like the world of stress and people DMing me, flagging bugs and issues and concerns they have um, and just doing that day in and day out. So like there is a, a level of like, if you do have one life and you want to enjoy it, like do you want to take a path that's like maybe down the middle? Like you can, you have the luxuries of getting a good salary and learning and challenging yourself and maybe other areas and disciplines in your life without the like overwhelming drowning stress of like really starting your own thing. And I think there's like a huge spectrum there between giving zero effort and giving everything in and being in constant stress. And like, I definitely question it plenty of times, right? Like I have given up two years of sitting in my room and grinding as hard as I possibly can at the expense of doing a lot of other activities, pursuing other opportunities. When you ask about podcasts, it's like, I'm aware of podcasts. I'm a huge consumer of podcasts. But even like during like the crypto and AI wave, like I'm interested in those things. I don't have the time to like really dive in right. and explore any of those. I'm so laser focused on what I'm doing. I think that's part of the reason why we've had success. But again, like everything's kind of a trade-off. Yeah, there's no single path. Um, that's for sure. Um, one of the, uh, the other interesting things I picked up on in, in one or two of your other conversations or interviews, um, and, and this pertains directly to the role of a CEO in terms of hiring, um, is that you, you much prefer individuals who demonstrate grit and like enthusiasm or passion for doing a thing, um, than you are about credentialism. Um, where you went to school, you know, what, what top tier tech company you worked at. Do you have any insights into how, um, and, and maybe for you within Beehive, it's easy if you're making, you know, uh, isolated hiring decisions, but maybe as like a society or, or culturally, how we get people to value those more like intangible things over the credentials. I think it's more so an opportunity for people to stand out. I've been shocked at how many people put in just like the bare minimum effort, like people who are looking for jobs, but they're just like kind of clicking a button on LinkedIn and be like, applied to 15 jobs today. It's two things are pretty top of mind. One person that we just had an offer accepted today, cold email was like, hey, I've been following you on LinkedIn for a while. Here's a website I created of why I think you should hire me. Built his own website of like his resume, totally catered towards how he built the newsletter, what his skill set is, what his experiences are in our branding. He created a Loom video walking through his background, his resume, where he thinks he could apply value to the company. And then he crushed every single round of the interviews, went above and beyond. We gave him an assignment, gave him a week. He returned it that night. It's like stuff like that. Like if you have it, it stands out. And I'm always shocked that like if there's a job that's willing to pay you 150K or whatever it is on the other side of you just trying for three weeks and the lack of effort that a lot of people put into trying to stand out in like a very crowded space has always been pretty shocking. And then another one of someone we might end up hiring 
he goes, hey, I don't actually have the skill set you're looking for, but I heard about you guys on my first million. I've listened to every podcast that you've been on, and I spent all last weekend building a demo in this language that you're hiring for that I didn't know prior. Here's a link to the demo. Demo was amazing. We got an interview. And like just the trajectory of that is like, he's probably the least qualified person that we're talking to. But if you bet on trajectory and like the intangibles, like yeah. I have no doubt in my mind, he's going to be one of the highest performing employees on our team. And so it's like intangibles like that, that I kind of look for. And of course, there's a stage where you need someone who has been there, done that and like built very scalable infrastructure and data systems. So you don't like go down overnight. And like we're hiring for those positions too. But it, especially for startups, when like you have to jump from role and responsibility, like at a drop of a dime to be like, oh, we need someone on customer support. Like I've messaged our head of growth like 10 times being like, hey, like we're actually really behind on support. Can you just jump in there for like five hours and he can do it and like apply that to any other cross-functional team and, and activity. And so like that, there's like a time and a place for all of that. I know like as a company grows up, you go less with like the broad range of skills and more in specialists. Like you want the best data engineer, you want the best designer, the best support team. But we're very much in like the early 15 to 35 people stage. And you need like those X factors. That's like, I genuinely want to work Saturday and Sunday. Not that that's required, but like they want to because it's a fun problem or they're owning a project that they know if they crush it, thousands of people are going to use this new product or tool. And it's very rewarding for them. And it's like, I don't force anyone to work weekends, but like when you find those people who are like, I actually really enjoy what I do. And like, I know the impact of what I'm working on and I want to do it. Like those are the kind of people that I look for in an early stage of a company, because I think that is in some way, like how I viewed myself at Morning Brew. And I obviously chose to work that way and have seen what it's done for me personally. And so those are the, the X factors that I kind of look for. I think often those people who do demonstrate like grit and enthusiasm and go above and beyond with no guarantee of things panning out. Uh, it's often out of like ignorance or naivete, like ignorance in a positive sense or naivete, um, which like I think was the case for you early on as well, whether it was like trying to build Shopify, you know, sites or, or supporting Morning Brew, especially where you said like, yeah, I can build this referral system uh, knowing you couldn't, but you'd figure it out along the way. Um, do you feel like now, I, and I think those are key drivers in terms of progress, because uh, you don't get stuck like stuck in the conventional ways of thinking. Do you feel like now that you do have more knowledge about the space and maybe you're a little bit more, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but like institutionalized in your thinking, has that like bogged you down at all? Or do you still retain the sense of like, um, I'm going to cut my own path. Like I, I'm still very naive about how to be a CEO, for example. And that leads to increased speed. I think being institutionalized is like how companies slow down and start like doing what everyone else is doing. So my goal is to always be as far removed from that. I think I try to be as far and even just how I speak on Twitter and LinkedIn from like the norm of how a CEO communicates with like people or a professional network. I think the way that we run the company is very different than how most companies run to the benefit of the employees. They feel a ton of autonomy. They're all contributing and they all step up. We have we had an intern who's been here for like three weeks lead like a massive initiative that touches all parts of the business because she expressed interest. No one else was doing it. And I believed in her and I was like, yeah, let's just run with that. And so 
I think we're as far from institutionalized as we possibly can be at our stage. And I think that's a huge competitive advantage. Um, and so that's kind of like something we continue to lean into. It's kind of like the the ethos of Morning Brew being a publisher with like zero at the time, zero journalism background with our writers and content and sales team. It was like kind of like the pirate ship of like, let's just serve our users and create interesting content and we'll see where it goes. But we're going to do that better than everyone else. And I think we run a very similar playbook in like the SaaS content newsletter space. You touched on this this concept of authenticity, uh, which was the next thing I wanted to ask you about. I get it's very apparent that both you and Beehive uh, come across as like authentic, that the product and marketing don't feel like forced or salesy. Um, and my, my guess is that that usually emanates from like the CEO and and their like sense of authenticity. Um, how have you, I, I imagine it's been very intentional. How have you ensured that you and, and Beehive stay authentic? May, maybe especially when there are short-term trade-offs you could make that w- might better benefit the business. Um, yeah, how have you, how have you retained that authenticity? Yeah, I think the authenticity starts because when it was just three or four of us, I was the one responding and in the trenches with users and building and asking them questions. I think what you typically see as a company grows is like the CEO and leadership goes, gets further and further removed from the core day-to-day of the business, what employees are doing, how users are using the product. And so how we've remained authentic is one, like up until we just hired someone to run our social very recently, like I'm typically the one tweeting and actually engaging with our users. So like I understand what they're saying. I see what chatter is going on on Twitter and LinkedIn and, and whatever channels about the newsletter space, about our product, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, what they like about other competitors and what they don't like about them. So like being very in touch with the pulse of what's going on in the industry and the space is like super important. I'd say like I answer support tickets still probably about five to 10 hours a week. So I see our angriest customers who are struggling with anything on the platform that have been escalated four times up until it gets to me. Like I deal with the angriest, most upset customers. And like that is a very real touch point of understanding where the pain points are in the product. And then I'm also like in the weeds, like I still write the product announcement emails. So like the things that I did when we were three people, I've tried to retain as much of that while we are 30 people. And so while the company 10X, my interaction with users and the product and the team and the community at large in the industry has remained as close as possible. And that's something I continue or plan to continue to do. Yeah, and I think importantly, the like direction of causality there isn't that like you're doing those things, at least my sense is you're not doing them for the sake of doing them, but uh, you actually care. Um, and so those are all, all those actions are just downstream of that. Um, so we talked a bit earlier about how you might not be passionate about newsletters. Uh, you, you're passionate about building and it's a matter of like what opportunity intersects with that. But I know you are super passionate about music. You did a short stint at uh, YouTube on YouTube Music as a product lead. You've also got your your Big Desk Energy playlist with uh, like tw- twelve or thirteen thousand followers. In, in an alternate universe, if you weren't working on Beehive and you were working on a problem in music, what would it be and why? It's a great question because I just saw a tweet yesterday about it was a list of things that people keep trying to solve for but they're dead ends for startups so like they're just like yeah, I saw that too. 
And one of them is like music discovery, right? Like everyone's like, oh, like you can see what your friends are listening to. Um, that's honestly full circle. What got me into VentureStorm, which is the company we started in college, was we had an idea for a music discovery app that was like Twitter, where you followed your friends and saw what they were listening to. And we didn't know how to build it. So we built VentureStorm, which was a platform to help you connect to engineers mm. who could help you build products. So that's actually the full circle. So I did try to initially, all of this journey of like where I am now kind of started with trying to build a music discovery app in college that we couldn't get off the ground. Um, so I don't know. I, I actually, as much as I love music, it's one of those things that now that I've spent time at YouTube Music and see like the underbelly of the music industry and the rights and the royalties and like the different players and the incumbents and the contracts, like I don't know if I want to solve anything there or get involved. I think I love music and I love being a consumer of music, but I don't think I want to build a business around music. That's fair. The The final question I ask everyone uh, to turn it around on you is what's one question you'd leave me and listeners with whether to think about or act on? Yeah, I, I should have read so I could be more prepared, but I can think of something. I, I would say... One, I didn't, I didn't include that one in the sample questions list intentionally. Nice. So you're oh, good. It's all good. Time. It's all good. Well, you've kind of primed me for this in like how the conversation has flowed. But I think in like one to take action or just think about like how you can make an impact. Thinking intrinsically about two things. One is like what is a skill set or experience that you believe you uniquely have from life experiences, career experiences relationships where you are like uniquely positioned to do something it doesn't have to be a business it could be like being a musician or whatever um but i think everyone through everyone's unique in their upbringing their life experiences what they've learned at job one from job two from job three to people that they know in their network that they have unique access to that other people don't and i think thinking about like on the entire infinite spectrum of the world and possibilities, like where you are uniquely positioned as an advantage over other people, um, gives you an opportunity to do something with that, whether it's productive in a business or just a new hobby. And then like the back half of that is like passion. And like, is it something you're actually passionate about? So you, I don't know if I said it or you said it, that I'm not passionate about newsletters. Like I'm definitely passionate about newsletters. I think the passion to build something that, is impactful and useful to people probably outweighs the actual medium of newsletters but right. newsletters is backing in so they, that's kind of actually almost like both of what i just said the passion for me yeah. is building something that is impactful and useful and something that i was uniquely positioned to solve based on life experiences was newsletters so i kind of combined both of them i think there's an overlap that most people could take a step and think about for their own lives that which could lead to action in one way and you developed a passion for newsletters over time as a result of that kind of equation you were talking about, whereas I think most people think there's something you're innately born to do uh, and you got to go discover it as, a poor, as opposed to kind of working or experimenting towards that. Um, awesome. Well, I know we're over time. Tyler, thank you so much. This was a, a ton of fun. For sure. Thanks for having me.